Welcome to the 117th uh, podcast of the Fleet Success Show. I'm your host this week, Steve Saltzgiver. I'm the senior Fleet Success Senior Advisor. Today, I'm joined with my good friend, co-worker, and industry fleet expert, Mark Canton. Today, we're going to discuss the topic uh, called Scariest Financial Mistakes That Fleets Make. Uh, this week, I want to give you a quick introduction for those of you that uh, um, have not seen me for a while as I host the Fleet Podcast. Anyway, I'm a veteran fleet management uh, expert and an and, uh, experienced fleet manager in the fleet management industry. Uh, one of the original Fleet Success Podcast hosts and uh, former uh, director of fleet for for the uh, state of Georgia, state of Utah, former vice president of fleet for Coca-Cola and Republic Services. Yeah, and I've been in the uh, fleet management business for, gosh, Mark, over 40 years now. So that's, that's uh, I'm hitting one of those milestones now. So absolutely. Give us a little bit about your background. Well, I will. But first, uh, you're, you're a very humble guy. And I want the our listeners to know you're also in a couple of fleet management hall of fame. So uh, in our circles, folks, we call Steve Saltzgiver the fleet whisperer because every time he goes to fix a fleet, uh, he, 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 he works miracles. But, uh, yeah, I've been in the fleet industry for over 26 years myself. Uh, started out in, in mostly in higher ed and transportation and logistics uh, in and around the New York City area. Uh, I've spent the last seven years, um, well, the last year or so in, in software, really, as uh, a product manager helping to design new fleet management information systems, but last seven years or so in consulting and, and fleet analytics. And I guess my claim to fame, although it's uh, not the most fun work in the world, is I'll often serve as an expert witness in uh, class action cases that surround uh, vehicle costing and vehicle cost modeling. So uh, so that's where a lot of my work and, and efforts have been, let's say, the last four or five years is vehicle costing. And and sustainability efforts, frankly, transition plans, um, feasibility studies uh, to convert to EV, CNG, that sort of a thing. But I'm happy to be here. Happy to be with you, Steve. Looking forward to uh, having a nice conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, financial, scary financial mistakes that fleet managers make, which really falls in line uh, very carefully with two of our pillars of uh, fleet success, one being resource efficiency and the other one being risk management. So as we go through this process today, we'll identify some of those mistakes and you can kind of figure out how that is uh, part of those pillars as you go through and you manage your fleets. Let's talk about uh, some of the scariest mistakes fleet managers make in the financial realm. Um, I always remember my, my old friend, mentor, um, always telling me that uh, there's two things a fleet manager can do if they really want to have the most efficient fleet operation that they can have. And that is have a very robust replacement program that's well thought out and then have a cost recovery and chargeback system. So those two things, uh, I wanted to lay that out there as we start this conversation. Uh, those are two things that you really need to be thinking about if you're a fleet manager. So Mark, let's take it from there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I could I could not agree more. That's exactly my experience from, from engaging fleets. You know, to put it in terms of the topic, you know, what are these mistakes? It's I find that fleet organizations, you know, to, to put a, a label on it, it's they're, they're screwing up their replacement program, right? They're not getting that right. And I would almost call it a, there's like a fear of capital costs, right? Yeah. There's this, there's this thing inside folks feel that they, that, 
that they need to drive vehicles to the ground to get the most out of their money. And unfortunately, it's a misnomer. Most fleets keep their vehicles way too long and in doing so cost themselves uh, a lot of money in doing that, right? As vehicles are utilized and age, uh, you know, that, that drives M&R costs. Uh, you talked about in your last podcast with Paul Loria some of the changes going on in the fleet industry, and one of them is that it's harder and harder to find techs, which, along with inflation and other factors, is only driving up the cost of maintenance and repair. Um, so, the you know, the, the marginal cost of keeping those vehicles too long is, is rising. It's not getting lower, right? Um, so, so I really think there's like this fear of capital cost and, and because it feels like it feels wrong, right? It's like, it's just, we all feel that in our personal finances, you don't want to lay out a lot of cash, you know, you don't want to put out 50, a hundred thousand dollars all the time. You'd rather, you know, spend it in small increments, but in the long run, if you're spending more money, it's, it's, it's not the way to go. And in fact, I think you and I would agree, Steve, that in most cases, you know, you can improve your replacement practices uh, and increase capital spending without actually increasing cash outlay, right? And so I think another piece of it is, uh, in in addition to sort of fear of capital cost, is really a a fear of debt financing that pervades most of the industry. Uh, And and it's, um, you know, in all the studies that I've done, uh, you know, almost, almost invariably, uh, fleets uh, would have a tremendous opportunity uh, to improve their certainly their cash situation and their budget situation and really their overall costs, which can be counterintuitive to folks. But by adopting debt financing, uh, we find that fleets actually have generally will have lower total costs of ownerships of the ones that are uh, using debt financing. So, hey, you know, one of the scariest things, scariest things that we see, I know, in our practice and, and maybe as we visit fleets, as we see these tremendous backlogs of replacement, yep, you know, and a lot of that's caused by that fear of capital that you're talking about, right? You know, the people will not appropriate the the correct amount of money for whatever reason. It could be budget impediments. It could be uh, the fear that they have. Uh, you know, it could be anything. But all that does is lead to exactly what we're talking about here: is higher costs, higher vehicle, uh, larger fleets more spares, you know, more technicians, bigger shops. I mean, it really just exacerbates itself as you go through the process. And that's, that's why it's so scary. Right. I mean, to, yeah, to, to your point. So a couple of things kind of stick out to me. You know, I don't know if you recall, I, I won't name names, but we did a, a large study for a large fleet uh, here, here in the Northeast, not far from where I am. And they just had outrageous maintenance and repair costs, right? Uh, you know, I, I remember we calculated labor rates in the three plus three hundred dollars an hour um, in a few of their shops. And and so, you know, when we presented this to leadership, their first instinctual question was, well, how do we improve the maintenance and repair program uh, and, and make it more cost efficient? And, you know, uh, it was a tough it was <laughs> tough to, to to have to tell them this, but it was you can't. Right. I mean, you, you could improve that maintenance repair program and get it as close to optimal as you can. But. Clearly, there were cost drivers there uh, that, you know, even if you got it down to $250, you know, or even $200 at that time, which was maybe, I don't know, seven years ago, you know, that would have been a great win for the maintenance and repair program. And yet, uh, you know, not the way to address the total costs uh, issues there, right? They needed to really adopt an aggressive replacement 
um, program uh, and just essentially avoid all of those operational costs, especially maintenance repair costs. So, you know, that's one thing that sticks out to me. People, their, their first thought for fixing maintenance and repair program, sure. I mean, if you got a solid program and you're trying to optimize it, you're trying to improve it and get it better around the engines, or if you have a bunch of low-hanging fruit, great. And I'm, I'm not saying not to do that. But oftentimes, if you have some systematic issues where you just have cost drivers that can't be avoided, um, the way to solve operational cost issues is actually through increasing capital expenditures, right? Um, and, you know, I think a good example, like an easy example to point to that I think everyone can relate to is the car rental business, right? Um, you know, the enterprises of the world, the Hertz's of the world, you know, pick pick one national, whoever you like, you know, they're Granted, they have they have uh, purchasing power that most fleets don't have. Some might for volume, but nonetheless, you know they're they're buying those vehicles, Steve, and what they keep them two, three years, maybe three years, and they're yep. turning them over. I'm not saying that three years is the right number for all fleets by, by any means, but there is a right number, uh, and um, you know, and, and and you really have to be disciplined about it. And that's why we like the debt financing because it tends to lead to having that discipline, right, in your replace program. And so, um, so yeah, we find folks actually have much lower costs there uh, in that regard. Well, early, early on in my so, fleet career, we did yeah, a so, lot of purchasing, right? And so, I mean, that was something that I always really probably preferred until I got into uh, more of the consulting realm and I saw real data and real real life situations because you're exactly right. People don't have that discipline and when you turn, you go turn to a lease, then that becomes an operating cost and not a capital cost moving forward. And so yeah, in you, many cases. you mm -hmm. essentially allow yourself to budget for that moving forward. And you don't have to wait for yeah. the, you know, for management to allocate cash or anything else. So. Right, exactly. I mean, I think, I think, so a couple of things also, you know, jump out to me. Like people think, oh, I spent $50,000 on the truck. And they kind of think of it in those terms, like that money is spent and it's gone and it's, so I'll ask people, well, what, what's your capital cost in the truck? And they'll say, well, I spent $50,000 on it. And then I'll say, well, yeah, but what's your capital cost on the truck? And they'll look at me like I have two heads, right? Yeah. And, it's, you know, and it's kind of like, well, you don't know till you sell it, right? And so uh, one of the things people I think don't appreciate is that that vehicle or that asset is costing you money simply by existing in your fleet. Whether you use it, whether you don't use it, it's depreciating every single day. And it's and it's costing you money, and so you really need to take that into account uh, and make sure that you're, you know, in most cases it's going to make a lot of sense to turn over those assets while they still have some value on them. Um, so you know that's something that uh, has really stood out to me. The other thing that stood out to me, Steve, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, but I mean invariably, I'm not going to say 100% because I'm open to the idea that there's always an exception to the rule. But boy, I'd like to say 99.999999, you know, percent of the time, older fleets are almost always oversized fleets, right? Because when they're when you're keeping vehicles too long, right, you're gonna they're gonna have need more time in the shop, which is what's driving those M and R costs we're talking about. But if they have more time in the shop, well, that means they're down more. And if they're down more, well, then what do you do about that? You're either renting more, or you generally most fleets I see will have more fleet assets because they, you know, they feel they need a higher spare ratio to account for that extra downtime. So, you know, on the one hand, there is such thing as replacing a vehicle too early or an asset too early, but boy, I'd rather err on that side because then I don't have those downtime costs uh, that, that go along with it. I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, 
you know, dealing well, I, with the trucks and the things you've managed, you know? Absolutely on point. I think, uh, I mean, you and I both are consultants, have been doing that for a long time. I think it's uh, absolutely um, the phenomenon that we see when we go into these fleets, they're always old. They've always got backlog. They've always got vehicles sitting on the sideline. I've seen spare races as high as 30% in some of these. Right. You know, and there's just, and it's just unbelievable. I mean, you think about a 30 year fleet just sitting around, not making money. I remember years ago, I did analyses on vehicles based on life cycle. And, and it was a, somewhere around 25 to $30 a day depreciation, no matter what the life cycle was or what the asset right. was. I mean, you think about it, that's just leaving money on the table, you know? Right. One of the phenomenons right. exactly. I saw recently, which really kind of blew my mind because I've never really worked with a, a tremendously low utilized fleet. And it, I found out uh, looking at the, the numbers that it didn't really matter how old the vehicle was or how, how much it was used. It actually mattered how much it was or how old it was, excuse me. And so it was kind of a crazy phenomenon. So at 10 years, that vehicle was pretty much used up, even though it had little, little to no miles on it. Yeah. Age was more of a factor than utilization, which I would never have thought that in my wildest dreams. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's certainly been the case in all of the data I, I analyze, especially. I mean, that is that is a sort of a theorem, I would say, or or a universal rule in the light duty realm for sure. And, and overwhelmingly so in fleet in general, uh, certainly in the medium duty realm. I have seen some heavy duty equipment, some yellow iron where... Uh, Utilization seems to be more of the causative instead of just the correlative variable, but I couldn't agree with you more. I see it uh, regularly in the market. You know, a younger vehicle, 2018, you know, let's say Toyota Camry with, uh, you know, 100,000 miles on it is often going to be more valuable than a 2010 with 50,000 miles on it, right? And yep. uh, I see that all over the place. Couldn't agree with you more. But well, there's yeah. other scary things. I mean, I just recently I'm talking to a lot of fleet managers. A lot of the OEMs now, major equipment manufacturers, they're stopping making parts exactly ten years. Right. <laughs> so I mean, if you're keeping your vehicles, I mean, now you got to depend on a secondary market, which may or may not have the part you need, because it depends on volume, right, and right. economics. So right. that's a scary thing if you start keeping your fleet way too long. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there there are some great aftermarket parts manufacturers, but let's be honest, there's also some that just make junk, right? That's why a lot of fleets will only use OEM parts. So, uh, yeah, that that's scary too. And and then there's other opportunity costs, right? I mean, again, I'll just use the Toyota Camry because it's in my head. But if you take a 2010 and a 2020, right, uh, same class vehicle, and you can do this with all the manufacturers, Ford, Dodge, whoever you like, um, you know, that 2020 is going to have much better fuel efficiency in the 2010, right? It's going to have much more, many more safety features, generally speaking, better crash test results. So there's all these other secondary things, these indirect things and opportunity costs that, that kind of go along with that too. Um, and, and I'll go back real quick to the fuel thing. You know, I, I know that's not, this is not today's topic, but, you know, one of the things the data shows time and time again, you know, in, in this world that we're, we're obviously very, very focused on uh, greenhouse gases and, and carbon footprint and that sort of thing. And certainly the, all the talk in the industry is about EVs, and, and I understand that. But one of the things I'll point out is that, you know, most fleets can make dramatic impacts on their carbon footprint simply by renewing the fleet, right? Just like like for like class replacements because of the way technology works 
you know, and, 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 you know, what manufacturers are required to do with regards to carbon emissions. So, um, you know, you know, always look for that, that great step up, that improvement if EVs or CNG or whatever is right for you. But even if there's not a good equivalent, simply renewing the fleet is going to help you pretty dramatically on that. Uh, and again, the data, the data bears that out time and again, time and again. So yeah, let's, let's talk thing. a little bit about, um, how fleets should be uh, taking advantage of a reserve fund or sinking yeah. fund or maybe their internal service fund, enterprise fund, you know, whatever mechanism they're using to fund. Yeah. You know, we see a lot of people trying to appropriate dollars from like general funds, you know, things right. like that, which, you know, are always in decay usually. Right. You know, they never have enough appropriation. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a fleet that ever had enough appropriation. That's like the number one issue. That's the scariest <laughs> thing out there, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. Well, and, and just real quick, I mean, sometimes you see the other extreme, Steve. I'm sure you've seen this too, but uh, I've come across fleets that do have a reserve fund, and you know they have, you know, three or four times the amount of money that they needed it, uh, and yet they're not spending the money to replace their assets. So it goes back to what I said earlier. It's like this, this scare, this fear of laying out capital, right? And yeah. so it's crazy. They got all the money; it's sitting there. Uh, they still don't replace their assets, and then it gets raided, <laughs> right? For yep. some other thing that the city or the or whatever the organization needs to do, build a new school or whatever it may be, and uh, and and now that opportunity is gone. So start at the top. If you do have a reserve fund, use it, <laughs> right? Um, exactly. You know, and if you don't, um, you know, it is hard to get one going. Let's be honest, Steve. If you starting from scratch is tough because essentially you need. You know, you need you need to make a large, like a large deposit into it. Yeah, yep. exactly right. You need it's like making a large deposit in your savings account. So you do got to do get some cash together, and you do got to make an infusion. You can actually finance that with debt as well if you'd like. True. Uh, but once you get that going, reserve funds are great, right? Because they really they smooth out. Yeah, you know, they make budgeting very easy or relatively easy because they smooth out via the chargeback. Uh, you know what needs to be charged for folks, and you don't have these major spikes and ebbs and flows. Uh, and they and they give you the funds that you need so that you can stay on time with replacement, right? It's um, you know, it's 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 pay it forward in a sense, right? You kind of you buy the vehicle and then you're paying for its replacement. There are a lot of mistakes folks make with reserve funds, but but yeah, uh, it's much better to have one than to you know think about it. If you have to go to your your you know your city or your county council, let's say, as for argument's sake, or even in a corporate setting, if you have to go to uh, your board of trustees or the folks in finance who approve budgets requesting that every time you need a replacement or every year for the replacements, it's virtually impossible to have a good replacement program, right? Because again, there's always going to be competing initiatives for what we want to spend money on this year. And so you'll never get everything uh, that always. you should be replacing. Yeah. It's just always. So yeah. I mean, people are doing building. Not... Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so the, the idea behind the reserve fund really is it's protected, right? This is money we have put aside. Um, and, and specifically, I would argue folks should have a, a reserve fund specifically for replacement. You can have another one for your operating costs. That's great. That's a good practice too. But, you know, you want to, uh, whether it's via good accounting and, and making solid entries, or if it's actually having two completely separate funds, you need protected replacement funding uh, that you can use that exists only for that purpose. And then that keeps you on task with your with your vehicle replacements. And in the long run, it will save your organization money. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff you can you can learn how to display, you can learn how to show, 
uh, you know, you can get help, right? We can show you how to do that stuff, but this is stuff that we can we can tell that story with data clearly and consistently. Um, it's it's um, it's 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 an accepted thing right now at the, at this point, right? It's truth. It's not uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Theory or uh, conjecture of any sort. This is reality. This is this is the fact of the matter, right? So sure as the sun will rise. So. You said something that made me laugh uh, about people not spending the money in their internal service fund or their sinking fund. And that brought me back to the three times I managed uh, public fleets where I was always trying to basically explain and protect the, the funds because uh, legislators and the, uh, the city councils always want to raid those funds. And I remember having conversations about that is not cash. Retained earnings is not cash. If you want to take the retained earnings, then you got to sell the fleet because that's what's holding the retained earnings up, right? Right. And a right. lot of people could never understand that differentiation. They want to basically appropriate or, or expropriate my retained earnings, which is really the value of the fleet. Right. You know, and so you know, it was always a, a constant challenge because when they see those reserve balances, they actually think they're cash. Right. And they're right. not necessarily cash. Right. And real quick, you know, since it's on topic and since that we do have a lot of listeners out there, I think, who do have reserve funds, some some quick, you know, off the top of my head mistakes that I see regularly with reserve fund management or replacement management. And, and please chime in here. Tell me if you see these. The first one that's, that's kind of funny when you stop and think about it. I mean, I could see how this mistake is made, but folks will buy a vehicle and then the uh, and then the, the depreciation charge back is, is just that. It's purely depreciation. Right. Well, that doesn't make sense because when you go to replace that vehicle or that asset, it's going to cost more than the one you just bought. So if you're just doing depreciation with no surcharge or no nothing to account for what the new asset's going to cost, you're missing something, right? You should be constantly updating uh, what the what the expected replacement cost of that asset's going to be at the end of its life, uh, and adjusting the chargeback rates uh, accordingly. You know, uh, uh, to that to that end. The other thing that I see that's constant, I mean, almost constant, and this one's kind of funny to me too, which is, you know, let's say they'll decide, okay, we're going to depreciate this thing over 10 years. Great. And so they go to depreciate it over 10 years and, uh, and you know, they kind of oftentimes will choose a number out of thin air. So folks don't do that. Go do some research. What's a reasonable expected residual value for that asset in, in the life that you plan for it? All right, and then they'll book that, and then and then it'll come time to replace, and like we just said, well, it doesn't get replaced. Well, then what happens? <laughs> it doesn't get charged back because it's past its schedule, and then when the thing finally gets sold, five years later, let's say, it's not worth what it, what was supposed to be worth, and so the correct amount never gets deposited in the reserve fund, and then folks don't, you know, the, the follow-up doesn't exist. It gets slips through the cracks, and then folks look up and say, hey, we don't have enough money in our reserve fund. Uh, to pay for the next year's replacements and that sort of a thing. So you really got to stop and the devil's in the details. But if you are trying to leverage a reserve fund, you know, those, those different things are key, right? You're not, you're not depreciating from the purchase price. You're depreciation from the expected future replacement price for replacement costs, including all upfits and make ready costs. Uh, you know, if you do keep it longer, you have to account for that and continue to charge. And you need a little surcharge in there. You need something in there uh, to offset uh, changes in price as well as things pop up, right, Steve? Like, yeah, we're not supposed to. I mean, how many times has this happened to you where, you know, you, you get something that's brand new, supposed to get replaced in 10 years, and two years into it, it's in a total, 
right? And now right. He, he kind of replaced it immediately. And nobody's pausing to make those kinds of adjustments and corrections in their reserve fund. So those are just some examples of things that I that come off that's right off the top of my head that I see a lot um, in reserve fund and replacement management. So. So one of the biggest mistakes people make, you know, when they have fully burdened chargeback rates is they end up uh, just allocating those rates kind of on an equal basis, right? And they don't really do it, they do it kind of irrespective of the, the type of consumption that each each department has. Uh, I, I can always think about like police and fire, big consumers, right? And if you're not doing exact chargeback rates, then you end up having some people getting cross-subsidized. Every time you know, for someone Every else's time. mistakes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you're not doing direct, if you're doing any kind of all-in rate, or you're doing like a class average rate, um, I, I guarantee you there is cross-subsidization going on in your organization. And if you're a government and your fleet includes enterprise fund vehicles, you're in all likelihood in in violation of of, of regulation, your own regulations. And it's 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 ironic, but again, you see it virtually all the time. You know. Uh, so you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely cross subsidizing there. And to your point, like we're not you're not saying anything negative when you say uh, law enforcement and fire are, are, you know, have high consumption. They should. Right. Law enforcement should have. That's that's the nature of the work they do. That's not anything negative. It's just acknowledging what the reality is and suggesting right. that costs should be and, and, you know, should be distributed accordingly. Right. They should get the money in the budget to pay for that consumption as as appropriate. So. Uh, that, that, that's not the issue. It's that you want you want to have visibility, you want to have transparency and clarity on what your cost drivers are, so that you can make good decisions, right? And and, and the only way to do that is to have those costs allocated properly. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's that's the big one, and it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. You know, we started with replacement, Steve, uh, because that's kind of the one that that jumps out. That's but the truth of the matter is, I think that some of that poor judgment and poor decision-making around replacement comes out of not doing cost allocation and chargeback right. Because what you see, and we just did a study, right, of, 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 of various groups, some within RTA, some outside, and it's amazing how few organizations actually do use a properly burdened labor rate, for example, right? And so you see labor rates uh, all over the country, and sometimes crazy things like 35 bucks an hour, but you know, you regularly see things 50 and $75 an hour. And it's like, listen, uh, if you're in the United States, there, there might be a few areas of this country left where you can still get below 100 bucks per hour for your labor rate. But, man, in all likelihood, uh, it's going to be up there. We did a quick, uh, our colleague um, Nathan did a, uh, you know, uh, a, a review of the top 100 fleets, you know, which you, you helped judge for. And he found that the weighted average labor rate was $127 and change, for example. So. Right. You know, so what happens? So you you have this, you know, you have this fifty-five dollar labor rate or seventy-five dollar labor rate. What what happens? It, well, it, it makes your M and R costs look lower than they really are fundamentally, right? Yep. And so yeah, if you're leadership, if you're finance, and they're going well, yeah, but it's not costing us that much to maintain these vehicles. That's keeping them a little longer, right? And that that clarity, that visibility doesn't exist, and so it feeds into that you know, to that, that vicious cycle uh, of not making good replacement decisions. So you, you got to get this right. You got to get your cost allocation yep. right. You got to get your cost charge right. And boy, that's like, that really is like, it's like the foundation of a home. If you don't have that right, odds are there, there are issues popping up everywhere 
uh, throughout the rest of the organization, in my experience. I don't know. How will you feel? Well, going back to that cross-subsidization, if you've ever been audited by the federal government, mm. your fund, and you're not allocating, uh, you know, consistently or appropriately, they'll take those funds from you. The federal government will. That's a good point. They'll yeah. expropriate those funds. I mean, we're all, if you have federal grants or any kind of federal leases, um, you know, you got both of those at Office of Management Budget, A87 for public fleets and A21 for university fleets. So you got to be able to to make sure you can provide the correct accounting or they will pilfer from your funds, you know, and, yeah. and they'll dig you. a great point. You know, so you got to have it right. So those yeah. are things to really think about as you're going through this process. So we're kind of coming That's to the end point. of our, our podcast today. So what what are some final thoughts you might have, Mark, on this? Well, uh, I guess I'll just reiterate some of the things, you know, that we've said, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about, uh, you know, at RTA is the, the four pillars of fleet success. And one of those is resource efficiency. And so I'll, I think in my mind, th this topic today, this is key to being efficient with your resources, right? If you don't have strong financial management and strong cost management, uh, it's really difficult uh, to be efficient with your resources. And one of the things that, um, you know, one of our colleagues, Paul Luria, used to say is, you know, managing budget and managing expenditures is not the same as managing costs. So I think that's a really important thing to remember. And so, you know, with that, I think that, uh, you know, getting this right, getting replacement right, getting your cost allocation and your chargeback right really is, again, foundational. It's like the foundation of your house. If you don't have it right, odds are there are cracks, um, you know, appearing all over the house. So absolutely. I know folks are busy. Uh, again, you know, I managed the fleet for over 20 years. You're constantly in, in, in firefighter mode, right? Trying to put out fires, trying to keep things afloat. But you got to make time to do, you know, to do cost allocation properly, to do cost chargeback. If your accounting or your finance group currently does it for you, um, you know, I don't mean this negatively, but, but it shouldn't be something you just leave up to them. You need to be involved. Data has contacts context you need to make sure it's being done properly um, and certainly you know there there are avenues to get you help for that if you need it that's foundational it has to happen uh, and then the other thing is you know um, you know I, I encourage leaders really this is maybe even beyond fleet managers depending on the organization you know if you're the leader uh, you can't be scared of replacement listen to your fleet managers they need to replace these vehicles they need to replace these assets and don't be scared of debt don't be scared of that. Do the math on it. I know everyone says it's going to cost more because of interest. I encourage you, do the financial modeling. It's going to save you money. I, you know, I, I guarantee it. So, you know, those those are kind of like the key takeaways for me and, and what I've seen uh, when doing these kinds of studies in the past, Steve. So a couple of things in conclusion, you know, to avoid some of these scary mistakes. Um, you know, I, I would always recommend that you partner with a, a veteran a fleet professional, you know, like at, just reach out, ask people like ourselves, you know, who've been in this business a long time. Uh, certainly you can listen to podcasts like this, the Fleet Success Show. Um, and for those of you that want more information, we actually have a Fleet Success Playbook that we can send you for free for those of you that listen to it. And we also have an annual Fleet Success Summit that you're certainly welcome to attend where these kinds of ideas are floated around and talked about. And then certainly uh, for those of you that are looking to uh, really become a, a more uh, 
conscientious and educated professionally, there's certifications out there that you can take advantage of. So lots, lots of information, good conferences you could attend, you know, yep. so there's a number of ways to really get yourself uh, up to speed. Right. Steve, we'll do sessions where we'll show you how to do the stuff we're talking about today. So at yep. some of these conferences. So that's a really great point. So uh, as we wrap this up, if you guys have additional questions or need additional information about today's discussion, please don't hesitate to reach out to myself or Mark or the Fleet Success Show team. Uh, you can also uh, send us an email, the Fleet Success Show, with any questions you might have or any ideas or future ideas uh, on social media at Fleet Success or send us an email at podcast at rtafleet.com. Uh, we want to hear your opinions. We want to hear your ideas. Um, with that, any final thoughts, Mark? Well, thank you so much for having me, Steve. I look forward to, to the next episode. Good to be back. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we'll see you next time. Take care.